Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the SpawnFest winners were announced and prizes were awarded. So SpawnFest, if you recall, is an 24-hour online competition where people work on beam-related projects and then submit those for judging. And there were 25 projects in four beam languages, Elixir, Erlang, Gleam, and LFE. And those projects were recognized in many different categories. So they had categories like creativity and usefulness and maintainability and correctness and, and others too. So it really is worth checking out some of these projects yourself because a lot of these projects also include demo videos and some have demo projects or diagrams to help explain or or show off what it is they accomplished. But we wanted to hit on a few of them. Got to hit the first, you know, the top three. Like the one that got first place overall was called Heimdall. And it is a web application that lets you share sensitive data in a secure and easy way. So we got links to the SpawnFest GitHub project but it supports time-based expiring max read counts, symmetric encryption and RSA public-private keys for encryption and ways of sharing a secret, then giving a link to someone else who you're wanting to share that with and maybe they have to provide a password or something to be able to access that. And then you can pull these requirements and security around it and then it automatically goes away after whatever period of time. Yeah, check that one out. It was pretty neat. You can put in like a list of IP addresses that can hit it. So... Yes, very customizable. Yeah, lots of options there. It's the kind of thing where I can imagine, you know, using something like that in another project. You know, like that may not be the whole service, but like say we do mortgage application as our business and we might want to let people share things like that. Oh, here's a great place to start. That's an awesome way. (laughs) Secured by this competitive coding competition code base. Yeah. But they won first place, so... Oh, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if they just got a front-end designer and fancy uh, spa marketing page, they could hit the front page of the Orange site, I think. (laughs) All right, next up. uh, Second place overall was Fluffy Train. Best award for best name. An application for generating working Elixir code using... Here's the clincher. OpenAI GPT-4. So, I don't know how Fluffy Train relates to that, but hey... Maybe that was a hallucination that they made and they just ran with it. (laughs) So it takes a user request to generate working code. It validates the code at runtime using code eval string. You know, always a handy dandy thing to do. And then it fixes any errors post-validation until the correct solution is received. And it can catch runtime errors and return that as well. So it seems to be some ergonomics around generating Elixir code. Because your first attempt, your first ask is just can include libraries that don't exist or functions that don't <laughs> exist <laughs> or, or you know, just, just old stuff, I guess. But anyway, congratulations, number two, Fluffy Train. And third place overall was called TabTab. It is an Erlang-focused auto-completion generator plugin for Rebar 3. In Elixir, we have Mix. Rebar 3 is primarily the tool of choice in the Erlang world. And so then it gives you all these options for doing tab completion to what are the arguments and and things like that. So, you know, if you're in the Erlang space, that sounds like a very useful little tool there. We'll go quicker through a couple of other notable ones, but that was first, second, and third place. So congrats to Heimdall, Fluffy Train, and TabTap. All wonderful names. I like it. All right. 
Another one of note was Arizona. And Arizona is a web framework for Erlang. We've mentioned it on the show before. Pretty cool web framework, but it's for Erlang. So you got your server, your router, your templates, your JSONs, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's what Arizona is doing for you. Nice to see something on the uh, Erlang side. The next one is called Latch. And Latch allows viewing open telemetry data as it comes in as well as some time-limited amount of recent data. It's like a little moving window, perhaps. But, you know, if you're trying to debug open telemetry stuff in your system, and like, is this working? Is it is it happening the way I think it is? That'd be pretty cool to see some real-time data flowing through. Yeah. I'll never forget the one time I was debugging some open telemetry stuff, and it was because I had tags that were too long, I think. Or no, they weren't escaped correctly. I was putting like a whole string of SQL in there. And, and that's just not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so it was getting lost in the adapter to send it up to the provider at the time. I think it was Datadog or something. All right, next one is UCAN. It's an Elixir library to help the next generation of app applications make use of UCANs in their authorization flows. What is a UCAN? It is a user-controlled authorization network. If you've heard of JOTS, JWTs, I don't know why we say JOTS, because there's no O in there. It's just it's JW, it's, it's JWT. <laughs> If you've heard of JOTS, UCANs are, are like that. So it's not an authorization framework in the sense of like, can, can, like, can the user do this, do that, do that? Well, maybe it's a little bit of that. It is a distributed user side auth token. Yeah. The distributed side sounded interesting. And the next one I saw was Lorax. It's actually a live book app. It's a package that implements low rank adaptation or LORA, L-O-R-A which is a popular method for fine-tuning large language models. So that was really cool, like in Livebook. All right, last one we'll talk about, which is kind of cool. This last one's called Carol Dreams. Carol, K-A-R-E-L. It's a robot named Carol moving on a board <laughs> using AI. So nifty. There's some inspiration there dating back to the 1920s, right? And then in the 1970s, there's starting to talk about robots. Anyway, so it's just combining a board some graphics programming. I'm going to guess a little bit of live view here. Well, obviously, because it's live book. Yeah. And it just renders the board and you tell it in plain instructions. Like, for example, draw L, the L letter, five points high in a red color. And then the robot will like move in this grid of squares and do that thing. I wonder what kind of crazy things you can tell it to do. <laughs> it's spin around really fast 50 times. Let's see what happens. Yeah, but that was really cool. Great to see all the SpawnFest submissions and the awards. Congratulations to everyone who submitted a completed project. And thank you to all the judges and all the time they put into reviewing those and scoring them in all these different categories. All right. Well, that was fun. SpawnFest is always crazy great. But ah, some other good news uh, or remarkable news, something that doesn't happen too often. Today, as of the day that we are recording, marks 13 years, 13 grand old years since the first commit to the Elixir repo. So the person who remembered this, Jose Valim, of course, celebrated this by announcing that Elixir is officially a gradually typed language now. All right. Now, hold your applause and your gasps. <laughs> the first milestone is to perform inference of patterns and guards so they can catch bugs in code without doing any changes in your language or your code base. And we want the first step to be a win-win for everyone. I kind of remember this from his keynote. 
he had talked about this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody had asked him, you know, does that mean we're moving forward with the rest of the gradual typing system? And he said, no, you know, that that's still the same state as it was where it's a look and see. However, there are lots of wins that we can get out of all the research they're doing. And this is one of those. And so, hey, we'll get some additional warnings that are type related based on what your code is giving you. And this is, again, on patterns and guards. Be sure to check out the tweet from Jose where he has a little image embedded that shows what we're talking about. And in this one, there's a pattern match where there's a binary pattern that's being specified where, you know, you're you're saying it starts with an integer and then the next thing is a float and it's able to catch that there's some problem and naming problems with the, the how the type is being referenced in two different ways. So it's new things that we weren't previously getting errors on. And don't want to forget that Elixir's a teenager now. So look out for all those angsty, angsty uh, commits coming up. The uh, the old type system going to be a a big boy language now, big girl language. <laughs> and next up, LiveView Native version zero point two point zero RC one was released. It appears that the releases and news around LiveView Native is actually speeding up now. So shortly after version 0.2 is final, Brian Cartarella will push the version 0.3 refactor that he's been working on, which changes how LiveView native apps are architected. It takes advantage of some upstream changes that were added to LiveView, you know, because of this development with LiveView native. What this change does is it removes LiveView native's need for these macro workarounds that they had had to implement. And the architectural changes are mostly focused on following the same patterns for format-specific render components that Phoenix has for controllers. And the concept is going to be extended into LiveView via LiveView Native. So that looks pretty cool. I'm excited to see as things start to settle out and people start playing with it more. It'll be really fun. All right. Herman Velasco shared a new short video tip about his LiveView helpers for making pipe-friendly functions to return OK socket or no reply socket. So, you know, it's a small tip but could be a nice uh, ergonomic tip for you if you're just so darn tired of the tuples, <laughs> if you just want pipes everywhere. Because sometimes that's like, you can almost do the entire thing in a pipe, right? The the, the entire yep. message can be in a pipe, but then you got to do the tuple at the end. You're like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> now I have to assign a variable and name this thing, you know? And so his tip is, well, essentially in your web module where you've got a bunch of your fancy dancy macros to auto import or alias things just give yourself a couple functions in there give yourself an okay function give yourself a no reply function that will make that stuff pipeable so you can pipe into okay it'll feel a little bit more like gleam or haskell i think does that too mm. it'll feel a little bit more like that but pretty nifty tip just a couple lines of code and get yourself more pipe in there <laughs> <laughs> and last up codebeam america is just two months away So Codebeam America will be in San Francisco, California, in physical and then also available virtually. It's March 7th and 8th this year. And Sasha Yurik shared that he's going to be there and presenting. So that's cool. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. 
give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Thomas Millar. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thank you for joining us. I'm really happy to have you because Sean Moriarty said, oh, you should probably talk with Thomas. Thomas knows he's, he's got some interesting stuff to say about this. And so I was really looking forward to this. So what it is, is you've worked on this library called Instructor EX. And this is all around LLMs, you know, large language models. I'm looking forward to getting into this. But you also have this big Python background which I really want to get your perspective on Elixir versus Python and how things compare where, you know, why would you even look at Elixir? You know, that, that's an interesting thing I want to get your perspective on. So, but before we get into all that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in Austin, Texas. So I bounced around the, the States a little bit and grew up in Canada. I work at Stitch Fix. I've been there for about a decade working on their um, algorithms and their data platform which is kind of giving me an interesting experience because given that I've been there so early on in the company, a lot of these data platforms, stuff that you'll read about like Snowflake and all that didn't exist. So I kind of had this great opportunity to build a crappy version of these data platforms <laughs> that you can now buy from scratch and, and developed a lot of perspective there. It's been very interesting working with like 100 data scientists for the last decade. So Stitch Fix, why don't you introduce the listener to what is this and like where does data fit into this kind of business? It's a clothing retailer. What makes it a little bit different is that you don't actually choose your own clothing. So you sign up and you get assigned a stylist and you say, hey, I'm going to commit to getting a fix. We'll send you a box. The stylist will work with you. They'll choose five items to put in that box. You get to try it on at home. Whatever you like, you keep and pay for. Whatever you don't like, you send back to us. And uh, your styling fee gets like docked if you choose to buy anything. As a result, the fundamentals of the business model is the company lives or dies based on what percentage of those five items can we get you to keep. Mm -hmm. So recommendations is at its core. It's not like Netflix. You know, everyone talks about recommendations. Netflix, that was one of the big first companies. But like, there's still search on Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. Right. If the recommendations are bad, you can search. So it's still a viable service without recommendations. Not so with Stitch Fix. If the recommendations are bad we go out of business. So that was what kind of made it interesting to come in. And then there's recommendations was at its core. And then the data science kind of algorithms function expanded out from there to say, hey, how can we do inventory optimization, buying planning, standard kind of marketing optimization, these sorts of things. So slowly over the decade, algorithms kind of permeated and run a vast portion of that business. Nice. Yeah. 10 years is a long time. It's kind of reaching back into the history of when those things were really getting started. So yeah, like you're, you're doing this before all the stuff is built out and available and you're having to figure out like, how can we make this work? That must've been some interesting times. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, when Bloomberg was still writing about Hadoop is when I, uh, I joined. So if, for those who've been around long enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'm interested in now learning about this library that you've created. And then getting your perspective on this. So like the library is called Instructor EX, EX for Elixir. It's like that little, you know, naming pattern that people use. And the GitHub project describes it as a spiritual port of the great Instructor Python library. So for those of us who are not in the Python space and we haven't seen the Instructor library, what is this doing? And so we can get some context of what is your, you're also creating here. 
Yeah, totally. So the instructor library in Python was created by my buddy, Jason. He actually worked with me. He was my roommate. We went to college together. And what it does is it provides like a really ergonomic way to do structured prompting. So most people, their familiarity with large language models is like the chat GPT web interface at the minimum, which is text in, text out. And this is useful because humans can interpret arbitrary text and these amazing LLMs can as well. But that's not really useful from a programming perspective because interpreting text has been a huge problem. It doesn't matter if you can get some magical oracle to give you text that responds to your answer if your code can't interpret it. It's not useful from a programming perspective. There's been a lot of hacks over the last year to make it easier to interrupt with large language models and code. So you say, hey, LLM, ChatGPT, like, only respond with JSON. Don't give me any other text. And I was like, I know how to deal with JSON. I can figure this out from here. Yep. And you're kind of just praying to the LLM gods, as Jason always says, that like the comma is in the right place and there isn't a formatting error or whatnot. <laughs> so OpenAI made this easier. I think it was like back in November or something like that with their function calling API where you can say, hey, let's enforce that it does return some JSON that is valid. And uh, there's a big boom over that. But the way that it was interfaced, it was trying to be kind of agnostic to the language. So the way that it did that was with uh, JSON schemas. And this is great because they're super expressive, but like nobody manually writes JSON schemas. It's a big pain. So what Jason did in the Python world is he used their kind of type hinting validation library called Pydantic, which takes type hints and then extracts JSON into those objects and classes and all the relations does it recursively. And then he'll generate the JSON schema from your Pydantic definitions and then get OpenAI to adhere to that spec so that when you get the results back, you have much greater confidence that it is not just valid JSON, but valid JSON of the structure that you care about. It's not just some arbitrary JSON schema. It's your JSON schema that you want. And it's an ergonomic way of uh, doing that. So anyways, that's kind of like the surface level, what it does. And then they're like, it goes down deeper from there. All right. So when you say, you know, that this is library for structured LLM prompting, like we're talking about structure of specifically JSON structure, right? Because like, you know, you could also say I want it to be uh, markdown structured or YAML or, or something else, right? Like this is specifically, I want JSON because computers have a really good time at interpreting that. Absolutely. To be clear, you can put other formats in JSON as well. So I have a little demo that I was working on maybe a week ago where I wanted it wanted ChatGPT to output a an explorer data frame. And like obviously it's not going to output like the binary format of like a you know term to bin or whatever the Erlang function is called <laughs> to do that. So what I did is I got it to output a CSV. It says like hey it JSON structure data equals a string that is a valid CSV. And, you know, there's not a way to express that directly in JSON schema, but you have descriptions. And so you just tell the LLM, this string should be a valid CSV format. And then through the parsing of it, you can just say like, explore.readCSV, and then, you know, pass it that value. And it totally works. You can usually kind of inject other formats that are more expressive for the problem that you're working on into JSON because JSON is pretty flexible. I think I know the answer to this, but any chance that these these prompts allow for streaming data? Like, can you have it stream? 
I don't know, like the payload, the CSV is so large that <laughs> you, know, you got to string that through. Otherwise it'll just choke. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually, I shipped this last night. <laughs> wow. Streaming as a concept is pretty simple when you're just dealing with like text in a chat bot interface. You, it's just a log. You just append to it. It's pretty simple. This is a problem with JSON because like, do you have a streaming JSON parser? Like, what does it even mean to be a streaming JSON parser? Like, am I going to get that closing bracket? Like, when you see the open paren, is, is, is the closed paren going to be there? Like, you kind of you have to make some assumptions in stream JSON parsing. But, I mean, it is a solved problem. There's a great library in Elixir to do this called Jackson. And so I kind of built on top of that to say, hey, when I like when you see like an open array bracket, assume that there's another one and like omit the values as you are reading them. And so you, I kind of have a cool demo on, on, I just tweeted it last night, a video on Twitter where I got ChatGPT to produce like a structured recipe, you know, with instructions and ingredients and cook time and whatnot. And you can see it omitting and like the struct expanding and <laughs> the fields being injected as they come in one by one by creating a JSON stream parser. So this is like another thing where it's like, you say structured prompting at its simplest. It's like, what are you doing? You're just saying calling like, you know, cast all with a JSON blob, like JSON decode, and then like ecto cast all. And it's like, yeah, kind of, but there's like other stuff that gets added on that makes the usability like way nicer. So streaming is one of those things that is somewhat non-trivial to implement, but very useful. So chat GPT, give me the entire Silmarillion script, <laughs> plus the Lord of the Rings, plus the Hobbit <laughs> in 10 languages. And stream that to me, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to mention earlier was like, in terms of the motivation is like, why should I care about structured prompting? Is that there's, there's like, you go on Hugging Face and there are these like 30 gigabyte files that encode all of human knowledge, allegedly. <laughs> and you just need a way to extract it. You just need a way to query it, right? Like we have this with the World Wide Web, right? It's Google, right? That's the way that we query the totality of human knowledge. But like, you know, we've had that for 20 years. It's not super easy to code against that. Yeah, look where that's got us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couple of superpower corporations got got us real far with encapsulating all human knowledge and searching through it. Right, right. Can you imagine ChatGPT being like, hmm, I see you're asking a lot of questions about like how to cook. You should go to this sponsored by, you know, like <laughs> Sir Latab, you know? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. I guarantee it. <laughs> I want to get back to that where you're saying how you are using this at work. Is this a, a work project like at Stitch Fix that you're seeing how you can use this? Or is this like some other project that you've got where you're trying to apply these structured prompts? Yeah, this is mostly outside of work. There are definitely use cases at Stitch Fix that we're talking about internally of, of how to use this. But yeah, th this is mostly externally. The motivation originally started was just like Jason and I are buddies. I was loving the demos that he was building. I, I wanted to do that in Elixir. And then as I started working on it, it's just you know, tons of ideas kind of come into your mind. Oh, I could use it for this. I could use it for that. So I'm going to work on, a, I think, a little demo project to help other people see where this is applicable. So like an example, this demo app, I'm thinking of building like actually a, a cooking app because it's like the, I feel like it's the, uh, uh, the to-do list app of AI. <laughs> and like, you can imagine where you say like, okay, the, the, the trivial example, like, or like the, 
the brain dead, simple, obvious thing that you can do is like ask for a recipe and it just outputs it like now that it's structured, it can like format it nicely. Okay. That's interesting. But like, what if you wanted to do search, right? Well, you're not going to sit there and wait for 60 seconds for GPT-4 to like output a recipe in the search. So what you can do is you can say like, well, okay, I mean, these are ecto schemas and like I have a database. Like what if I created a seed.exs file that goes through and like pre-populates the database as if your database is a cache for the LLM where you say like, okay, enumerate all cuisines, give me 10 recipes for all cuisines, output a recipe in all these formats and then save it to the database. And then you can go and build your, you know, cooking app that just uses like traditional full text search or maybe embedding search or, or whatever you want to do there. And then you can say, okay, well, that's great. But like, how deep am I going to go with seeding the database? Maybe I'll do a thousand recipes, but then like someone comes in and they, you know, they put some special name of their grandmother's recipe from, you know, the old country that nobody, I didn't think, I didn't think to put into the seed. And so you can have this kind of like dynamic filling of the cache where it's like, Hey, whenever there's a search result where classical methods have zero search results, fire off, you know, some, like an open task that goes and queries chat GPT in the same way that you do in your seed file to like populate the cache and things like this. So th this is just kind of like, you start thinking about it and you're like, oh, if I get these structure and they're just ecto schemas, like where do I use ecto schemas? I might be able to use instructor there to like change the dynamics of the application. I love the comparison to a cache, right? Like, you know, like it's, it, there's a cache miss. All right, let's go out. And instead of just like Google search for, you know, a chocolate chip cookie recipe, it's have it generate one. And then you're taking that result and then caching that in your database, returning it. And then the next person who comes along asking for it, like we have a, the cache version. Is that the right idea? Yeah, yeah, totally. And you can think of like additional things that you do. Like once you have the structured data, you can apply classical techniques that you can't even get in LLM. So you can say like, oh, okay, imagine this cooking app. You know, I want to implement a feature that's like keeping track of what's in my pantry and what's in my fridge. Right. And then you want to search recipes that like I can make right now. You can definitely do that with ChatGPT, you know, in a sort of way, but like it would be really fast to go and do that if you just have the actual properly indexed, you know, with ecto yeah. and whatnot for, for all the values. And that's just like an instant search. Yeah. So there, there's just kind of like interesting things that you can do once you have that stuff cache where you can give a much better experience using classical techniques that you've been using for the last 10, 15 years. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, so if we talk more about function calls, like you mentioned, ChatGPT made it official, like that we support this idea of a function call, and now they've renamed it to tools uh, for their API. Um, but it's the idea of it calls a function, and you're specifying this is the structure of the arguments. And I love that, you, like you pointed out, that you have documentation where you can give an explanation of the description for this thing is this, and it should be formatted this way. And, you know, like a properly structured CSV file, you know, like anything like that to give the LLM instructions on how to provide the data correctly. And then you're talking about like, okay, well, then I can say it's calling these functions, but I can use my ecto schemas to say, is that valid? And then if it's not valid, you can give a meaningful error back to the LLM and it says, oh, let me try that again. And then with all those coding examples, so like you give it the error and then it does again and like it fixes it. So then it finally works it out and gives you the data exactly how you want it, right? I think it's a great approach. 
It's nice for a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of like the uh, Oven philosophy where it's like, you already have Postgres in your app. You know, let's just use that for a job key, right? It's like, you already have Ecto in your app. You already have all this code about custom validations and around change sets and all of this. And hell, these change sets even integrate with, you know, Phoenix forms and whatnot. So there's like, there's really that choosing Ecto to be the interchange format between you and the LLM provides a lot of leverage in, in the design, I think, because you can integrate with a lot of other open source libraries and leverage those validations. And then, yeah, what you brought up about the, the max retries is that's like, you can just kind of think about it. Like you, it's kind of, you require like a little bit of a reprogramming of your brain where it's just like, you know, usually your code, you're like things I can solve with code, things that I have to present to the human. Well, it's like, well, now you have like a digital human that can like, do the things that I couldn't do with code, right? So when you're like validating an Ecto or a, a Phoenix form, you know, you'll just provide back like a, a human readable error. And it turns out, yeah, if you just turn around and pass that back to the LLM, it will fix that. An example that I use in the docs is I have this somewhat trivial example of a spam prediction, right? Like here's an email, tell me if it's spam or not. And I give a confidence, I add a confidence score on it. And the confidence score is a float, but I want it to be in between zero and one. Mm -hmm. can't really define that in the Ecto schema. So you just add a description flag that says like, oh, it's between zero and one. And then like when I'm using some of the smaller open source models, not using like GPT, sometimes it'll, it'll put it on a scale between one and a hundred instead of zero and one, or sorry, zero and a hundred instead of zero and one. And so you can just call that in the validation, you know, validate number greater than zero, less than one. And it produces, you know, a great, you know, error goes back, fixes it. And like, now I don't have to worry about this in my integration code. It's just like good prompting, like validation for LLMs is the same as good validation for user input. Like that's the key banner line takeaway. And, and when you start thinking like that, you're like, oh, well, I should be using the tools that we built for the last 10 years to validate human input as if it, this digital human is just a user. So what models are you targeting? So, so far, we just talked about ChatGPT. And I saw you were expressing some interest in, you know, looking at Bumblebee too. So have you tried any other models? And what's been your level of success there? Yeah, so I feel bad. Sean has been messaging me over the last couple of weeks, and he wants to use it for a project, but he only wants to use it if it's using Bumblebee. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll write the adapter for it like tonight, tonight, for sure. And then I get distracted <laughs> with something like, oh, you know, and then the in-laws come and visit and whatnot. So like, I've been promising it to him for like two weeks. I was like, Sean, if you're listening tonight, for sure, I promise. <laughs> Behind the scenes, it's just, instructors just implemented with a behavior for the LLM. So by default, we use the OpenAI one and all other behaviors have to match the OpenAI spec, which luckily in the broader ecosystem of open source language model inference servers, they all typically do. So writing, you know, implementing the behavior for different inference servers is like somewhat easy. So I have one for OpenAI. I have one for Llama CPP, which for those who don't know is a project that you can run these models, in a slightly different format, but like locally on your machine. And with Llama CPP, you can run like, there's like hundreds of models that it supports. So I've personally tested with Mistral, their like Mixtral 7B1, the Microsoft 5.2 model, Meta's Llama uh, 13B. You know, I would have tested more, but they all just kind of worked out of the box. So I was like, I, I, I think I've proven the, <laughs> proven the point to myself. So I'll move on to some new features. Yeah, I want to integrate, I think his name's Jason. He built a Llama CPP EX 
binding. So like right now, my implementation of the behavior just queries like a locally running like web server that Llama CPP has. But ideally, you can like package that in so the install experience is like way better. You don't have to say like install this, put this adapter, and then like run all this C plus plus code over here. <laughs> yeah, and then for Bumblebee, uh, building the adapter, it, that one's going to be a little bit more difficult because Bumblebee obviously isn't like open AI compliant API. So I'll have to write the interop for that. But then, yeah, I should be able to run Mistral, all those models that I mentioned with Llama CPP that Bumblebee supports. So you should be able to just run it and it will be all inside the beam using NX and benefiting from like NX serving and, and, and all that great stuff. So if you wanted to package it up and deploy it on fly or something like that, it's would be considerably easier. Well, I'll tell you, before you get into the Bumblebee side, we should talk because I've been working on that. Actually, I have my own little library that's doing this same kind of thing, right? Like talking to Bumblebee and, and having to convert the text into the structure that the model requires because it's, you know, like uh, using something like Olama or Olama CPP, they put all the structure around the conversation for you and structuring it into like user messages and assistant messages. And it's like, uh, if you're going straight to Bumblebee, you don't have any of that. And you have to use the structure of that model, which is different for every model just about. Yeah, I've done a bunch of work on that. But specifically, I am waiting for a new version of Bumblebee to drop because otherwise... You're working off of the main branch and unreleased code, and it's pretty messy at that point. <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I was digging into this. We should definitely chat. I was digging into this the other night just to see like what it would take. So, like Bumblebee under the hood is is like kind of an interop layer with like hugging face transformers, like the Python library that all these LLMs are implemented. And a lot of the time, it actually just like reads the config for the model from hugging face, and then just like dynamically sets up all the Bumblebee code. And so historically, the things that Hugging Face Transformers didn't have an explicit spec for was these chat templates. And it says, hey, this model formats, in, and, and, and they added it maybe like two or three months ago. And they're looking at integrating that into Bumblebee. They kind of like punted on it because they use uh, Hugging Face, of course, uses like Jinja templates, which is like the templating language, the main templating language in Python. We don't have an implementation of that in Elixir, so it makes it difficult. But I'm like kind of hoping that like someone will get that working so that then it becomes really easy where you say like, yeah, we don't have to do that chat template. Because like right now in my experiments, it's just like, yeah, I implemented like the template for Phi, Mixtral. I don't know, there's like one other that I implemented uh, that I just have like a little config that you switch. So you say like, like instructor adapter, Llama CPP, model, Mistral and it just like knows to use the right template and like but I'm not I'm not going to sit around and like implement every template for every model that comes out um yeah maybe there'll be an interface for someone else to like the user to provide the chat template or something like that some of the templates don't support system messages and others do yeah the big problem I've run into and I'm just curious if you've encountered any of this and have any solution because I would love a solution in this case but like making function calls for some of these other models like I've, you know, like Mistral, Zephyr, and some of these other ones that are the open source, locally runnable models, unless you get a one that's pre-trained for functions, then they pretty much are terrible at it. And I have not found even a way to force them to give consistently good stuff. Like you say, only return JSON. You give it whatever kind of prompt you will, and then it'll give you a bunch of text. And then and here's the JSON that you would use to call it if you could call a function and, you know, like that kind of a thing. And so you have to like, it's a mess. Boy, do I have a treat for you. 
there's a solution. Oh, woohoo! Yeah. So this is one of the main reasons why I integrated with Llama CPP first. Llama CPP has this feature called grammar-based sampling. Yes. For the reader, like how it roughly works is that like a neural network at the last layer of the neural network, it's basically, it, there's like a node for every single possible token that it could output. So like whatever, mm-hmm. 60,000 tokens. And then it, the number is like a probability of like, what's the probability at this stage in the completion that it should, the next token should be like X, Y, Z. It's predicting the next word. And then what it does is it just says like, okay, t- take the max value and then like output that token and then like feed it back and start at the start again. And so this means that like it can output really any token that it wants. And so what grammar-based sampling does is it says, okay, take the max probability of the last layer that is also a valid token in a like standard BNF grammar which is, I forget what BNF stands for, but it's like some formal language spec that, you know, used to implement languages. And so this actually kind of forces it into not just outputting JSON, but if you can construct the BNF grammar correctly, like the specific JSON structure. So that's what we do in Instructor EX for Llama CPP is that I take your Ecto schema and I not only produce the JSON schema, then I could take the JSON schema and produce a BNF grammar that enforces that every open source model when it's doing the inference, it will only output exactly that. Now, obviously it's not perfect because it's like that model is not in the weights and whatnot, but like I guaranteed to get valid JSON it and <laughs> of your structure, whether it's sensical, you know, <laughs> nonsensical or not is a different question. And you've got to experiment on that for, for, for your things. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this later, like what I'm going to be doing next with it. There's like some really interesting stuff that you can do there with fine tuning yourself. But yeah, this is basically the technique. So if you're, if you're using Llama CPP, there's this thing called BNF grammars. And if you generate them from a JSON schema, which I can give you my code, it's a module there in, in instructor, you can generate those BNFs and just pass them into Llama CPP and you get guaranteed that it matches that schema. I've been chatting with Sean about, it was like, hey, if we were serious about Bumblebee integration with this, like this seems like a pretty important feature to implement in Bumblebee which just happens at like the neural network level. That would be where it needs to be. Because otherwise you're saying I have to use Llama CPP because it's the only w- one that's kind of added that like, you know, force JSON output kind of option. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that's really cool. We'll have to keep having some conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, also, yeah, all the code there is like very, well, another benefit of Elixir, it's all very you know, functional and whatnot. So taking mm-hmm. it is going to be very easy <laughs> if you get, if you need it nearest. Well, while we have you, I want to make sure we can touch on your Python experience. Maybe you should give us a little background. Like what is your programming experience? How much time were you spending in Python? You know, we know you were because you're doing all this data processing at Stitch Fix, but then how did you come to Elixir and why? I started my career in Python. I was doing like Hadoop stuff, big data, Hadoop, uh, this, it's like Java language, uh, Apache pig and all that. And then anyways, eventually all those are going to be terms that people have long been forgotten to history, <laughs> Apache pig. But anyways, yeah, I joined stitch fix and we built out the whole data platform there in Python mostly. And just the reason being is that that's where the ecosystem was. So, you know, all the data scientists, they wanted to, all of their machine learning code and stats code was in Python. R a little bit too. There was like a brief three-year period there where we were also supporting R for the entire data platform, which was wow. 
well, it was a decision <laughs> <laughs> that we uh, no longer do. Yeah, so we built everything out in Python, helped build out the ecosystem there. And then we started running into some issues around like model deployment, where it's like, okay, we could create this little walled garden that everything was in Python and everything worked like pretty well. And we had a, we had a stringent kind of interface on where the data came into the algorithms world and then where the like algorithms came out. And they manifest like to give like a high level view, because this is the motivation for why Elixir is the way that most companies do this is they say like, okay, I'll have like my engineering team. So at Stitch Fix is Ruby on Rails and we have all our databases and whatnot and they factor them out in microservices and do whatever engineers are going to do. And then what we do is we snapshot those databases every night and we say like, hey, let's take the database back up. Let's like take it out of the Postgres format and put it into like basically CSV files. They're technically mm. called Parquet files, but whatever. We're going to put those Parquet files per table per day in S3. And then we're going to have this like, and then a data warehouse is really just an index of like, hey, if I want to query this table from this day, where is the file in S3? And so that's like all a data warehouse is when people talk about data lakes, for those who don't know. And then it's just tons of massively parallel query engines on top of that, on top of that index. So there's like Spark, there's like Presto, everything uses called the Hive Metastore is like the terminology for that index. And then everything integrates, everything knows how to talk to the Hive Metastore to figure out where to load your data from. And then just like streams it down from S3 and does this processing. And then, you know, crucially is able to write back to S3 and create new kind of tables. That's how the data warehouse is set up. And you'll have these big ETLs, these background running jobs that pull down the data, do your featureization, train your machine learning models, save them out as whatever format is popular for, you know, the format du jour. And then what you do is you'll deploy microservices that then go and pull in that model on deploy. And it's just a very simple inference server, right? Pass in a client ID, get back recommended clothing. They'll go and query, they'll load, you know, their pre-computed features from the data warehouse into like some feature store or whatnot. If you're an engineer and you're hearing this, like, whoa, that's like really, that's a lot of systems to do something that like we do every day inside of like Rails <laughs> or in Phoenix, right? Where you're just like, yeah, that's just like an ecto write to or like a virtual field or like, you know, there's a whole set of technologies that have like solved for this. That's very weird that the data science world does it in this different way. And there's reason for that. Like generally in your app, you're querying like one row at a time, whereas they need to scan the entire table. So they need special technology to do that. But when it comes to the inference side, it's like, why am I querying a different like microservice for this thing? Like it's, it's kind of a pain. And there's a lot of like operational complexity that comes along with that. And that's where I started investigating Elixir is like, okay, we built this thing. It works. Like, the company's, you know, makes billions of dollars, right? Like it, it clearly works, but it's like, it's not great. You know, it could be better. And so that's what led me down to doing this research. And the thing that I found so interesting about Elixir was like, oh, I started noticing it when the NX stuff started taking off and you're like, oh, I could compile down my model and go and run it inside the language that like my engineers are using. So they just like import it as a module. They, like you import your model as a module. And then with Erlang distribution, right? You say like, okay, well, yeah, but there's like some real concerns that you have there. It's like, okay, your app servers aren't going to necessarily have GPUs. 
both like distribution, you could imagine deploying your model in a standard way, like Heroku style deploy, but like half the nodes are like in the web part of the cluster and half the nodes are on the GPU, you know, kind of heterogeneous hardware that's optimized for those specific workloads. And then calling the one on the GPU node is basically the same as calling it as if it was local. I implemented that in Python for like what we have where it like, it's like a Ruby function call and it looks like it's a local Ruby function call. But like, if there is a GPU implementation of that, it will like go off box and compute it there. And it wasn't pretty to write that. <laughs> like it's, it's super buggy and like it took time to get right. And the fact that this is like built into Elixir, I was like, oh, there's all this cool stuff around distribution that we don't have in Python. And to get it in Python, it's like, it's gnarly because it's, there's kind of fundamental aspects of the language that make it difficult. Whereas, you know, the Beam makes a lot of this stuff easy, even for the Beam itself to implement because of immutability and these sorts of things. I'm, I'm guessing you've heard of Flame then. Yeah, totally. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that haven't, Flame is kind of removing a lot of that complexity of doing like off-node computation somewhere else and returning it back to your node. There's a whole blog post on it. Christmas Gordon, we'll, we'll share links to it. But yeah, like what used to be like a microservice or in this case, Flame is attacking serverless functions. But depending on your microservice, that could essentially be that thing too. <laughs> so you could wrap that whole thing up in like a closure in Elixir and it'll transparently spin up that like GPU node, for example, start your app, run the function, stream the response back and be done. Boom. Like essentially in what, like some lines of code to configure it, there's an application tree thing to start or stop it, right? Look at the right thing. And then otherwise, it's just like a regular function that's in a closure that you send across the wire. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's so good. In the Python world, so they, they have this. There's a company that made this in the Python world over the last like two years. Eric Bernardson, he was like a, the, one of the main data scientists at uh, Spotify and this uh, other company. Anyways, his company is called Modal Labs. And like people in Python love this. It's like not implemented the same way that Flame is, but like spiritually, it's like kind of solving the same problem where in Python, you can just take a function, you just add a decorator on it and say like, run this on GPU node with like 24 gigs of VRAM or whatnot. <laughs> and then when you call the function, it just like behind the scenes, like spins up the, like it, it's, it's spiritually doing exactly what Flame does, but yeah. it's like, it took them like three years to build this. Like it's really hard <laughs> to build the infrastructure. It's probably like a whole Whereas business. Like you go look at Flame, it's like 300 lines of code or something yeah. because like the beam is OP, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. I had mentioned that like, hey, the engineers, like why are the data scientists like putting all these, putting all the data into S3s and that's so efficient, inefficient and whatnot. Why do they have these like, you know, distributed clusters for computing? Well, it's because there are problems they need to scan the entire table. Like that's how you do your machine learning. Like you're not reading row at a time. And so that's like a tangible difference of like why you couldn't do data science inside of a Ruby on Rails app. That's a real problem. It's, it's not, it's not just like a, it's not just like an aesthetic problem. Like it's a real technical problem. And so when you go and implement your data warehousing solution, you need something to run your ETLs every night. And so the main thing that they do in industry, it's called Apache Airflow. It came out of Airbnb. And like, basically it's open with like open workflows 
or you can say like run this task if it completes then run this and then fan out to these and whatever you, you create a dag of execution and then it will go and like kick off that workflow every night or based on some trigger or whatnot it's like you have that in open already in a lot of job running frameworks actually the problem is is that the x the the actual computation of the task happens on node mm -hmm. and that's why you can't that's why like you, you just can't do that for data science right it's like what am i going to spin up eat all your cpu and gpu on your like web node to train the model and like you can't serve traffic <laughs> it doesn't make sense so that's why it's all separate and then even among the separate thing it's not like we have some monolithic etl running server you have an etl running server that just does the orchestration around which task to run and then it will spin up they're called like ecs tasks or you know depends on your input provider but basically a flame call or like internal to Apache Air, or, uh, yeah, Airflow, you're basically doing a flame call. Internally at Stitchfix, we have a project called Flotilla that goes and does this. It's like kind of, you know, everyone has been, implemented this at every company. And so what's exciting is that you go and look at this as like, well, if I have flame, I don't need really Airflow because I already have open. And so you're like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I could have my data scientists in theory, not just do their model inference, using NX and NX serving and Elixir distribution, but also I could have all my ETLs defined in my monolith Elixir app. And like, I don't have to worry about, you know, thrashing CPUs and whatnot, because all it's really doing is just like waking up, like it's an open workflow and just saying like, oh, okay, I can trigger this task now. And that task is just a flame call. So all computation happens off box. And then you leverage kind of all the nice parts of Elixir that like, uh, uh, like preemptive scheduling and whatnot, you just kind of guarantee. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, whoa, you can like really simplify the stack here using Flame. Like there's, I, I saw Flame and I was like, that is Flotilla and Airflow for like stitch fix parlance, right? And you're like, I can delete that. Sweet. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so good, right? I'm so excited about it. Like it, it, what, to be clear that this doesn't exist yet, but like, there's there are just a few pieces left in the Elixir ecosystem, and I can delete half of Stitch Fix. <laughs> Love those PRs where it's just all red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't need this. We actually have a Slack channel at, at, at Stitch Fix called the the Dead Code Society, where everyone just posts up like their screenshots of their PRs of like how much they deleted, <laughs> memorializing it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're about out of time, but before we go, I want to make sure to touch on what is next for Instructor. You teased that there are some things coming, and I'd just love to hear what you've got in mind there. Generally speaking, if you want to know what's next with Instructor, just go look at the Python library, and I'm mostly just chasing down what Jason built, at least for the next like two months until I catch up. Specifically, what I'm excited about is he, he has this great workflow around distillation, which is like kind of a fancy word for like fine tuning under a specific context. But the idea is, is that like, hey, we were talking about those open source models before and you're like, yeah, okay, it conforms to the JSON schema, but it like the values might semantically be nonsensical, right? And you say, okay, well, I really like this open source model because it's free to run, quotation marks, right? The marginal cost is like way lower to run it, but it's not as good as GPT-4. So what you can do, distillation is the process of using like a very advanced model to generate data that you can fine tune a smaller model on in this specific task and context, boost its performance. And this has been employed successfully, like, you know, OpenAI even has an API 
to fine tune. You give it a CSV file or JSON file of the data, and like it will fine tune it, and then you can you can call it. And so I'm kind of excited to implement this internally with Instructor, where it says like, hey, just like have your app code, have it use GPT four. We're going to set up a logger that logs out the appropriate messages in the correct format that you can fine tune on. And then like in a live books off to the side, take your data. Once you've it's accumulated from whatever your application is, go run a fine tuning run, whether it's through like an infra provider, like natively in Bumblebee or with OpenAI or whatever it is. And you can distill that down to a smaller model. One of these, like, let's say Phi 2, which is like the Microsoft model. It's like only a billion parameters that you can like run it on iPhone pretty easily. Mm, and then you yeah. say like, okay, well now I have a large language model. And then you just, in your, in your call, once you're fine tuning, you say, okay, don't use GPT-4, use, you know, my fine tuned model version seven. And the integration code should be the exact same, but hopefully the speed at which it will run is a lot faster and the cost can go way down. Those spam examples, like in the demo, you can imagine that like, oh, I have a spam detector for, hey, I'm, I'm beta launching my app. With my beta user testers, they're forgiving. They can tolerate the high latencies for the first two weeks while I collect the data and then I fine tune it. And now my latency for that LLM call is like 500 milliseconds because you can run Phi at like 3000 tokens a second on like a reasonable machine. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's just like this distillation process. That's something I want to work on. It might take me a little bit. I think that there's really good power in that where it's kind of the way I like to think about it is like your app is kind of fine tuning itself and getting more efficient and reducing its costs. Auto, it's like auto tuning itself to increase performance and decrease cost. Well, hopefully keeping the um, correct quality standards. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, that sounds like some really interesting stuff to watch for what you're doing there. So if people do want to follow along or maybe even get involved, if that's an option, where should they go to do that? Yeah, I mostly just tweet this stuff out. My Twitter link, I'm sure will be in the, the show notes. It's my name with no vowels because, you know, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mo- I mostly tweet this stuff out and then you can go and watch the repo and start it on GitHub and you'll get the notifications in your, your GitHub feed there as well. Very cool. Well, Thomas, I've had a great time talking with you. Really appreciate the insights, especially, you know, I love getting that perspective from someone who's been heavy in the Python space that can actually give us some real world checks on like, this is where there's value in Elixir. And, you know, still there's some gaps that we need to fill to be able to really meet the needs of the market and what people are looking for in like best of class kind of solutions. So yeah, thanks for sharing some of those things. Yeah, no, of course. I'm excited to uh, help y'all build it out. I'm all in. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.